Content warning. This episode contains discussion of sexual abuse and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. When their roommate asked if her dad could crash until he got back on his feet, seven students at Sarah Lawrence College obliged. Over the next decade, many of their lives would be turned upside down as they were lured into his web of exploitation, abuse, manipulation, and torture. This week's episode is Larry Ray and the Sarah Lawrence Cult. Up, bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. This one's been going on, uh... For quite a few years. I mean, this is something that it's only now getting a lot of press. I remember reading this cult article when it came out and being just completely flabbergasted and weirded mm-hmm. out by the whole concept. Um, mostly because personally, I loved my dad, mm-hmm. but I would never have wanted uh, any of my uh, family members to live with me at college along with seven of my friends. No, definitely a strange arrangement. Yeah. And mostly I remember reading it back when it came out as well. I worked, I remember working at the law firm. We got this sent into us by actually Taylor, one of our Patreons. And that's the first time I'd ever seen it. And sitting at my desk, I remember going, I can't sit here and read this whole thing. I got work to do. I've read the whole thing. (laughs) Just sat there and read it. compelling. it's so compelling and it's a, a, incredible investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. But I was the most stumped at the very beginning was what you when when I went to college and this wasn't that far, you know, different time. You know, it's not like this was like back in the 60s. This mm-hmm. was very recent. You had to have like a badge to get in. There were RAs. They would do random room checks. It was pretty. They kept a finger on the pulse of who was in whose room. Yeah. Having visitors of the opposite sex even was weird, but not weird, but like you was strict as far as you know when people could come and go and like what floors you were supposed to be on as far as co-ed so it was bizarre to me that there was a full-ass 50 year old man sleeping on the ground and nobody thought maybe we should call that in uh yeah the uh when i went to tech i was in an all girls dorm so Mm -hmm. if we had guys in our room after you know curfew we would get uh, written up, got written up several times. It was all above <laughs> board, though. I was never doing anything like, never doing anything fun. Um, so yeah, it there was some. There was one dorm that had alternating four floors of girls and guys. I did, it wasn't a liberal arts school. Perhaps it's different. This dorm was was very co-ed. It almost sounds like they were just a group of friends who kind of lived in this dorm it wasn't necessarily arranged by the school uh from what i've read talia larry's daughter kind of found it and and set it up for all of them so maybe it wasn't more the traditional type of dorm that i knew regardless i would have been uh weirded out had one of my roommates said hey uh my dad's gonna crash with us for a while but as we'll see these were all very you know, um, 
kids that were, uh, you know, kind of went against against the norm. I know one of them said, we we're about to buy a giant bag of sand and dump it on our kitchen floor and make a little beach. So we weren't, you know, the typical normal bunch. So it didn't yeah. even seem like it was it was weird to a lot of them. And then, as all cult leaders do, they slowly groom and indoctrinate you. And then... Yeah. Before you know it, it's just a, a normal thing that's happening and you don't even question things anymore. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, when you see cult leaders, especially any kind of predators, but they prey on people who are kind and who are welcoming, uh-huh. accepting and kind. And I think we'll see that's everybody in this dorm pretty much was, you know, you want to do your friend a favor. Your friend's dad needs some help. You want to do him a favor. You think... You cannot fathom what happens, you know? No, and they were all, you know, struggling in their own ways, too. So they might not have been in the best mental headspace to really even think too much about it or or put up an argument. Well, yeah, we've been uh, getting a lot of requests to cover this one because it's been in the news recently because of some recent things. Um, We're going to break this up into two episodes, but normally... You'd have to wait until next week to hear the second part. We're not going to do that this week. We're going to release it later this week so you guys don't have to wait a whole week to hear it. We get those DMs that are like, I got to hear part two right now. Well, happy to happy to help. We, we heard gotcha. you. Yes. So, uh, But it's there's so much to cover that we are breaking it up into two just for the sake of, of length and everything. So we'll cover part one. There's... So much, and then still so much in part two. And who knows, by the time we even record part two, there might be some new stuff that's come out. So we'll see. We'll add that in too. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Lawrence Greco was born in 1959 in Bay Bridge, Brooklyn, New York. He eventually changed his last name to Ray, adopting the surname of his stepfather, Gordon. He also started going by Larry. After high school, Larry did not go to college. Instead, he joined the military. According to The Cut, Larry spent just 19 days in the Air Force in 1981. He later worked on Wall Street, then as an accountant. One of Larry's friends at that time told The Cut, Larry was a chameleon. He could be a good old boy or a patriot, or he'd pull out a pipe and a fake glasses and he'd be an intellectual. He would juggle 10 different people at the same time telling each of them one piece of a story he wanted them to know and convincing them that he wanted them to be a part of his master plan. The Cut has done a phenomenal article on this. That's where a lot of our information's come from. Um, But still, we didn't (laughs) cover everything they they discussed in there. So to get an even bigger picture of of his life, specifically his dealings with... uh, political people that we'll see, I highly recommend going and and reading that. And it's in our show notes. For sure. And we'll get into part two, how important those journalists were. And when you Mm -hmm. become part of the story. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, Larry owned two nightclubs where he hobnobbed with important politicians. He was a mover and a shaker and loved being the go-to person to make introductions between influential people. His biggest political connection came when he befriended Bernie Carrick. At the time, Bernie was an NYPD detective. The two became fast friends, with Larry even being the best man at Bernie's wedding. And it was sort of in the late 90s that now Larry starts getting mentioned in 
magazines, newspaper articles because he starts having political connections. And one person introduces there's a famous photo of him with Gorbachev in front of a municipal building because he had facilitated this introduction. So he's trying to worm his way without actually getting elected weasel his way into the limelight arguably better than being elected you just rub (laughs) elbows with the politicians get all the perks but you don't have to do the political side of it a hobnob and mover and a shaker Mm -hmm. larry took pride in introducing bernie to his influential connections to help advance bernie's career in kind bernie introduced larry to officials with the fbi he quickly positioned himself as an informant telling the FBI that he had critical information about an illegal operation being run by the mob. He said that because he was willing to talk, his life was in danger. Believing him, the FBI paid for a $10,000 security system to be installed in Larry's home. And he had started doing construction insurance and getting involved in people with tangential relations to organized crime, but it definitely seemed like he intentionally wanted to become an informant. Consulting business, which is always kind of code for we can do a lot of stuff under here. But he specifically did it with like, yeah, construction, the gambling industry. So Mm -hmm. he was associating with a lot of people that might not be doing everything above board. I also feel like he wanted labels. He wanted to be an FBI associate without having to be an FBI agent. He wanted to be best friends with the police chief without, you know, like he was a name dropper for sure. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so did not just say, well, you know, so I'm a consultant and I work with the FBI. Yeah. He wanted to seem more important and necessary than he may have actually been. For months, Larry provided what would amount to useless information to the FBI. Eventually, investigators discovered that Larry had no intention of helping the Bureau bust the operation. Rather, he was a part of the scheme and had been using his position as an informant to cover his tracks. Larry reached out to his good friend Bernie Carrick, who had been promoted to commissioner of the NYPD by this point. The cut reported that Larry wrote to Bernie, begging his friend to use his political connections to help him stay out of jail. Bernie responded, I would do anything for you. Adding, though, that he could not get him out of this for risk of jeopardizing his own career. Bernie added, I'm sure you understand. Larry did not understand and would spend the next 20 years seeking revenge. Definitely a person who stoked these political connections with the thought of, I have a get out of jail free card. And when your card doesn't work, you get really pissed off. Mm -hmm. Nothing was altruistic. It was all for his own personal gain and to put, you know, pieces into place that later he he collected people, you mm-hmm. know, and he collected people's titles. And he, so then later he's like, oh, well, I'm untouchable. I can just call up my friend Bernie and he'll get him get, get me out of this. He's like, you know, the police commissioner. I was the best man mm-hmm. in his wedding. Right. Like, watch me. But this, yeah, this is a pump and dump scheme, which was very popular back in the 80s and 90s where, you know, they had these phone banks. It's like the boiler room and they would call people up and go, oh, this penny stock is going to double in price. Like Wolf until of Wall Street? Yes. And then people buy it and then you then you sell it as soon as everybody else has bought it and you leave everybody holding the bag. But it's genius from his perspective to be in the boiler room knowing that mm-hmm. they're doing this and to go, well, I'll just tell the FBI I'm helping them. And that's why it explains why I'm there all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But really, he's just doing the crime. Yep. And also, he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I can still make friends with the FBI, but also still do my illegal operations. 
can keep doing my crimes. Keep your friends close, but enemies closer. And the FBI closest of all. <laughs> Our biggest enemy. Actually, they're not. They're, they're heroes. Larry was indicted for his role in the securities fraud scheme in 2001, along with 17 other defendants. He was sentenced to five years probation with a stern warning from the judge that should he slip up, he would wind up in federal prison. During this time, Bernie's career was thriving. The leadership he had shown in the aftermath of 9-11 made him a household name. The city renamed the jail after the beloved commish, and George W. Bush nominated him to be Secretary of Homeland Security. Everything was coming up Bernie. <laughs> While he initially accepted the nomination, just a week later, Carrick withdrew his name. He admitted to having once employed an undocumented nanny and therefore felt he wouldn't be a good fit for the position, according to the cut. On the heels of this unexpected announcement, the Daily News released another breaking story on Bernie. They had received information that Larry had been gifting large amounts of money to Carrick, including paying for his wedding and giving him a custom Tiffany police badge. The paper's source for these shocking revelations? Larry Ray. Oh, man, willing to cut off your nose to spite your face, you know? Say, like, I'll throw you under the bus. Oh, yeah. Good luck with your appointment. It didn't, I mean, he, all he has on his mind is straight-up revenge. Yes. Doing whatever he can to destroy this guy because when the shit hit the fan for Larry, in his mind... Bernie wasn't there for him. But what do you expect this man to do? He expected him to get him out of, of everything. Mm-hmm. The embarrassing claims destroyed Carrick's career. The city stripped the jail of his name, an affair he was having was made public, and multiple federal investigations against him were launched. After being publicly humiliated, things became much worse for Bernie in 2009, after he was sentenced to three years in prison on felony tax and false statement charges. It seemed Larry's plan to destroy his former friend's life for not helping him stay out of jail had worked. Still, Larry's obsession with Carrick didn't end there. Over the next two decades, Larry would accuse the disgraced detective and other government officials of trying to poison him and his daughter Talia. That's when we start to see, you can say all day long, Bernie didn't, wasn't there for me when the chips were down, but now we start to see these bizarre conspiracy claims mm -hmm. and injury claims that, not really out of nowhere, but that he starts planting the seeds. And the seeds had been planted even before this. Talia has now said that, uh, you know, even when she was a kid, her dad would tell her, there's poison in the walls. There's poison in the attic. People are try trying to poison us. She knew very young who Bernie Carrick was and that mm -hmm. he, you know, he and other government officials were involved in this conspiracy to take her dad down. So it's just this mind fuck that from a very young age that, he, and he has another daughter too who's younger who has not been named to protect her, that he's just brainwashing them. Yeah, and planting those seeds of it's everybody against yes. your dad. Mm -hmm. And if anything happens to me, if I get arrested or whatever, I didn't do it. No. You've basically given yourself, you've absolved yourself in the eyes of your daughter through indoctrination and brainwashing, mm -hmm. which is horrific. Yeah. In 2004, Larry's wife, Teresa, filed for divorce, according to the cut. She also reported Larry to police for physical abuse. In turn... Larry and their oldest daughter, Talia, who was 15 at the time, 
reported Teresa to the authorities for child abuse. To support the claims, Larry created blogs detailing the alleged abuse by Teresa, complete with photographs and letters supposedly written by Talia. According to the Denver Post, Larry tried using his former political connections in the custody dispute, threatening Rudy Giuliani with damaging information that he would release unless he got help. Giuliani declined. Again, you see, that's the point of any of his connections Mm -hmm. were self-serving. This is stomach-churning for me that his wife is being abused by him, is trying to leave him, and he accuses her of the worst thing a parent can be accused of, and then goes so far as to gaslight and brainwash his children that they have been being abused by their mom for all these years. He fabricates pictures. Mm -hmm. He has them write letters. I mean, to be Teresa and reading and seeing these things from your kids, I can't even begin to comprehend how hurtful that is. One of the letters by Talia started, you were the the uh, biggest threat of my entire life. And when, you know it's not true. No, yeah. it's not true. I mean, that's just heartbreak. It's heartbreaking for Teresa. It's also horrific that these girls have now been made to believe that their mom has been abusing mm-hmm. them, the one person that is supposed to protect them from everything. Yeah, the severe parental alienation is... Stuff like that is the worst, mm-hmm. you know, some of the saddest part of family law when you see that not only now you're robbing, he's robbing the kids of their a relationship with their mom, but also a relationship with him because now mm-hmm. he's become this manipulative abuser. But this is where we start to see evidence. So he's been in court a couple of times, right, by this point. Now he's like, well, if I want to win, I'm going to have to have evidence. So he creates the letters. Mm-hmm. He has the kids write the letters. He creates the photos. He puts them on some blog. He has these confessions of her thinking, oh, I'm going to create this paper trail. And whoever has the most evidence wins. Mm-hmm. He contacted Teresa's uh, family and, you know, their mutual family to tell them all of this. I mean, his his M.O. from early on is, well, if they don't do what I want, then I publicly disgrace them and ruin their lives. It's a war path. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a war path and he will not be stopped. According to the cut, the investigation found no evidence of abuse by Teresa, but it did find something about Larry calling him. Literally impossible to evaluate because he's able to manipulate and control almost any situation in which he finds himself, including a psychological interview with a forensic examiner, no matter how experienced that examiner may be. Mr. Ray is very good at what he does. He is a calculating, manipulative, and hostile man. It appeared his manipulation tactics were used on his youngest daughter as well. When a forensic examiner asked the four-year-old if her mom had hit her, the young child laughed saying, That's what Daddy tells me to say. According to the cut. So fucked up. Yeah. And the thing about him is he, you know, he can trick the forensic examiner, but a four-year-old, they're going to, you know, once you work with an expert, the expert's going to be able to pull the truth mm-hmm. out of them. But they've been coached to oh yeah, to lie and, and say these horrible things. When a court required Larry to turn over custody of Talia and her younger sister back to their mom, he refused. As a result, he was jailed for six months for contempt of court. During this time, a brainwashed Talia chose to live in youth shelters instead of with her mom. In an interview with The Cut, a 
family friend said. She was his soldier. Talia is a really loving person, and she is the biggest victim of all. I agree with that. As we'll see, she um, she really just is so dedicated and brainwashed by him and has been since she was little that she just sees him as this heroic figure that can do no wrong. And yet again, he gets arrested for what we see is completely legitimate. But to a teen, you think my dad is a warrior who fights on my behalf to keep, you know, to keep me safe. And he went to jail for six months because he was keeping me from my evil mom. If you've really been indoctrinated and now you really believe that. And as we'll see, he just with the years, he gets even better at these manipulation tactics that that's going to you're going to believe that hook, line and sinker. Especially when the result that he said would happen, happened. It shapes your whole worldview. One of the cops, when they um, arrested him, said he remembers Talia, who was at the house, screaming, this is because of Bernie Carrick and the government. I mean, so clearly, like, that's the first thing she thinks when she sees her dad getting in trouble. Yeah, it's true indoctrination. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2006, while still on probation for the federal securities charges, cops were called to Larry's apartment on a report of domestic violence. His girlfriend at the time accused him of holding her down and putting his hands over her nose and mouth, according to New York Magazine. Federal officers determined that this was a violation of his probation. According to the Denver Post, after a weeks-long search, Larry was taken into custody in July of 2007. All the while, he maintained that this was part of a greater governmental conspiracy against him. He later told a conspiracy theorist and author that Giuliani, George W. Bush, and Dick Cheney were united against him because Larry knew secrets about 9-11, according to New York Magazine. And I, I think, and you tell me if I'm off base here, I think he genuinely believes that. Oh, yes. He is unhinged. He is He is unhinged and also... A con man and extremely manipulative and an abuser. He's all of the worst things humanity has to offer wrapped into one very, very damaging human being. And to clarify, because someone DM'd us a very interesting comment on the Sherry Papini case, because we said, you know, she probably, which, by the way, as as I'm sure we all know now, Sherry Papini pled guilty. She's admitted everything. We will see what her sentencing will be which happened right after we recorded Mm -hmm. and right before we uploaded. The timing was insane. Someone said, it was almost as if she had listened to your episode, (laughs) your first episode. I told you to plead out, and (laughs) she plead out. Um, But the timing was wild. So, But I will say, because, you know, you talk about somebody like that, again, that's a master manipulator and and fooling people and everything. She can have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Larry, Ray can have mental health issues. That does not absolve them of the culpability for their actions. So being diagnosed with something and then having the mens rea of the crime that you committed, which is the mental state necessary, the crime you committed to absolve you of your culpability are two separate things. Yeah. We, you know, we all got something going on, you know, we all have something going on to various degrees, but it's not until a person, you know, like when we see certain cases where someone's got really bad delusions or something like that, that's two different things. He can be, uh, as, delusional as he is believing that George Bush is after him, but then also completely responsible for everything else Mm -hmm. he did. Yes. Yeah. And it's up to, uh, in both of those cases, 
a uh, court of law to determine if that they were mentally incapacitated enough at the time of their crimes to where that is a reason that they should not be held accountable. Mm-hmm. But as yet, that is not the case. So like we say all the time, uh, you can hold two truths in your hand at the same time. Absolutely. Teresa wasn't the only woman to have problems with Larry. For years, he had cheated on his wife with various women. Friends and colleagues that knew him during this time said it wasn't uncommon for Larry to offer the women to them for sex. When one girlfriend tried to break up with him, Larry humiliated her by sending graphic photos of her to her parents. Later, when a different girlfriend tried to leave him, Larry had a GPS system attached to her car without her knowledge. And now we're seeing the manipulation and control goes beyond his own kid and now has gone into women and has also moved into the sexual realm. Yes, he treats women as objects. He uses them as if they're some kind of um, prize or bartering tool with with others that he wants to um, get in good favor with. They're not... They're not people. They're his toys to offer up like someone would say, hey, uh, you want to spend a weekend at my my cabin out on Jackson Hole? Like to him, that's the same as, hey, you want to have sex with my girlfriend? It's it's fine. She's totally fine with it. Yeah, there's no consent, whatever. You know, if you have a non-traditional romantic relationship, that's fine. But that's absolutely not what he had. No. He had women who unwillingly were then offered as props as sex props uh, to be used for whatever purpose, for favors, goodwill, whatever. We don't see any money at this point, but in a few years that will change. And when they try to leave, just like he was like, uh, I'll be goddamned, he destroy tries to destroy the reputation and humiliate them. Can you mm-hmm. imagine and- your parents are sent graphic nude photos of you? And, yeah. then, and he calls them telling them who knows what. Making stuff up. Mm-hmm. And I think another, this is yet another case of him trying to get evidence because I don't think those graphic photos that he took of her were taken with the intention mm. of, I love you and let's just have this fun photo shoot together consensually. I'm sure it was, hey, let me take these photos. And in the back of his head, and he's like, and then if you ever try to leave, mm-hmm. I now can pull a ripcord and ruin your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. In September of 2010, Larry was released from jail after violating his probation. His oldest daughter, Talia, was now a freshman at Sarah Lawrence College, a private liberal arts college just 15 miles outside of Manhattan, New York. She and her seven roommates lived in a two-story brick building in the middle of campus called Slonim Woods. Talia was older than most in her friend group. Others saw her as a leader, someone they could trust. According to The Cut, She spoke highly of her father and regularly told her roommates stories of his political connections and colorful life. She believed that he was a hero and had tried to save her and her sister from their abusive mother, something she also told her friends. When she asked her roommates if her dad could crash with them for a while now that he was out of jail, her roommates agreed, thinking nothing of it. This would be a decision most would eventually come to regret. And if the family friends assessment is correct that she was his most beloved soldier you know his most loyal soldier that then you're the roommates you're only ever going to hear the good side Mm -hmm. and even though you say hey my dad's getting out of jail well why was he in jail oh my god you wouldn't believe it rudy giuliani and george bush (laughs) right yeah have 
conspired against him. This woman lied about him, said that he choked her. But of course, that never or you don't even tell him that. Mm-hmm. And you just go, oh, my gosh, he was trying to be an informant in the FBI. And they really just rolled on him mm-hmm. and screwed him over and just make up whatever you want to make up. Yeah, it's a complete one sided view of somebody that you're getting. For the most part, the roommates were typical 19-year-old liberal arts students. They were an introverted group who did well in school. Like most college freshmen, they were looking for a little guidance in their lives, trying to figure out who they were and find their place in the world. Several of them struggled with their mental health and other issues. Santos and Claudia both struggled with depression. Isabella was vulnerable after having recently gone through a bad breakup, and Daniel found himself questioning his sexuality. When Larry arrived, they all found a comfort in his father figure ways. Larry wooed the group when he first moved in. He cooked lavish dinners for them and would take them out for expensive meals. The college students were charmed as Larry dazzled them with exciting stories of his time working with the FBI and CIA. He would often gather them in the common area to have hours-long discussions about philosophy, the kind of thing liberal arts students craved. Those that were depressed found themselves suddenly hopeful when Larry told them he could help them by meeting with them for weekly counseling sessions. According to DOJ documents, Larry told the students they were broken and that he would fix them. Wow. So you're 19. We've all been 19 or Mm -hmm. you're currently 19. It's a tumultuous time in your life for many. You know, you just moved out of your parents' home. You're in college. You're going through a bunch of life changes. Suddenly, this knight in shining armor arrives that seems to have all the answers. You're, you know, trying to figure out your your own stuff. You're looking for an older person to give you guidance. Ta-da, here's Larry with all the answers. Well, and like his childhood friend said, he's a chameleon. Mm -hmm. So he could be anybody to anyone. If someone needs more of a father figure, if they need a friend, if they need a therapist, it doesn't matter. He's not himself. He's whatever they need him to be. And then same with if he's able to manipulate professional decades long experience, forensic examiners, a 19 year old fresh out of their parents house who may have other, you know, emotional questioning, anything going on. They stand no chance. No. This is a person that can take down the best questioners that, you know, that mm-hmm. the even the FBI. He tricked the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Larry seemed to take a special interest in Isabella. While he had been sleeping on an air mattress in Talia's room or on the couch in the dorm's common area, Larry now announced he was going to start sleeping on the floor of Isabella's room to help her get over her recent breakup. This arrangement made Talia's boyfriend at the time uncomfortable. Larry brushed this off, telling him, You look like I'm going to be sleeping with her, but I'm going to be sleeping on the floor. She needs someone to help her, according to the cut. Other roommates recognized how emotionally unstable Isabella was and thought this was a good idea. Juliana, another roommate, told the cut, Isabella was pretty fragile. In fact, a lot of people in that building were pretty fragile. Well, what does a cult leader want but a bunch of fragile vulnerable people for him to seek his teeth into. Absolutely. And you say, I'm going to sleep on the floor. I'm going to sleep on the floor. But then there's reports that they would walk in and he's spooning her. Yeah. Or she would have her head in his lap Mm -hmm. and he would be stroking her. So that whole, again, it's manipulation of what? Hey, what are you accusing me of? You're a monster. I would never do that. And then immediately does it. Yeah. The boyfriend said he saw her sitting on the bed with her head in his lap Larry's stroking her saying, nobody's going to hurt my baby. Nobody's going to hurt my baby. So, and that's also, 
not so subtly, but kind of, of like, uh, marking her as his terror, my baby. Mm -hmm. That's not your, you didn't, that's, you're not her father, but you know, he takes this, um, control and this authority over them. Like, like he's protecting them, but he's also saying, I now own you. Well, and it's, you know, the love bombing of, I love you Mm -hmm. so much. I'm going to dedicate, you know what? You're special. I'm going to dedicate all my time to you because you're special. And for all the students, it's the frog in the pot, right? You, mm-hmm. It's room temp water when they get in, and it's going to start. We see they start, he starts raising the fire. Yes, and you don't even realize it till it's too late. Larry's behavior with Isabella escalated as the college's winter break approached. Not wanting Isabella to leave the dorm and return to her parents' home for the break, Larry made an alarming move. The night before she was set to leave, Larry called Isabella's mother and told her that Isabella had been sexually abused as a child by a family member. He explained to the worried mom that if her daughter came home, she was likely to kill herself. He berated the woman further, adding, You let this happen to her. Shocking. So upsetting. Her mom said, We were very close, so I was shocked that I wouldn't have heard about this. And you're also like, Who the fuck are you calling me telling me this is my fault whose dad lives where yeah you're like who is this guy and a lot of times with the parents we'll see there's not going to be a direct connection to this the kid that you say hey well could you put isabel on the phone no you're the one that let her get mm-hmm. att- you know abused when she was a kid i'm not going to put her on the phone and like put up walls and definitely alienate more alienation just like he did with talia and the mom he's now doing this with these students and their parents and we saw, you know, we talked about it in the Ryan Ferguson episode that it's not easy, but it's not hard to really plant memories in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And they said he would have these sessions, these quote unquote sessions, because they were broken and he had to fix them, where he would talk with them one on one, sometimes up to hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you break somebody down after hours and hours and as manipulative and convincing as he was, she may have genuinely believed that that mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just. It starts off with, why? how's your relationship with your parents? Oh, wow. Well, that sounds like that's probably why you don't feel loved by them because X, Y, Z is happening. You know, and then you're like, that is why I don't feel loved by them. You're just, it's it starts to make sense after a while because he would just talk in circles. I mean, the journalist yes. for The Cut said when he interviewed him later that he would go on these monologues. For an unbroken 20 minutes where he's just talking in circles, trying to, you know, and if you question anything, it becomes even even a longer thing where he's just like, eventually you're just like, okay, I'm tired of listening to this. I'm just not even going to ask any questions anymore. It's like, whatever you want, I'm done. Yeah. Larry was successful with his manipulation tactics. Isabella stayed with the group for the winter break. Instead of living at home, she lived in a one-bedroom condo on 93rd Street that was owned by a friend of Larry's, with Larry, Talia, and Talia's boyfriend. As reported by The Cut, Talia and her boyfriend slept in the living room, while Larry slept in the bedroom with Isabella. This wasn't the only concerning behavior Larry exhibited during the foursome stay at the condo. Talia's boyfriend later told The Cut that Larry told him he should stop taking his prescribed antipsychotic medication. And that Larry controlled every aspect of our lives once we were in that apartment. When we ate, what we did, when we went to bed. At the end of the winter break, Talia's boyfriend ended his relationship with her. 
And, you know, good for him for leaving, but that's yet another quiver in the, you know, where you go, he left because he doesn't care about you and yeah. I care about, you know, it's just another way to alienate her and keep her, you got to do what you got to do to protect yourself to the boyfriend. That's a completely sympathize oh, with sure. that. But it's just yet another thing that Larry can use to oh, yeah. go, it's just me and you. See, they don't get it. They're not good people. He isolates all of these mm-hmm. people from their loved ones, from their family, from other friends. Makes anybody excuse- that may argue. Yeah, anybody that that betrays them mm-hmm. is and is becomes an enemy. And to not take your antipsychotic medication, one, don't ever do that unless your doctor tells you to stop. But again... If he does, that's another way that Larry can step in and control him and manipulate him. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's like you, like the friend said, "Oh, he's everything to everybody." Not just a counselor wanting to listen to people. Now he's a psychiatrist mm-hmm. wanting to tell people what medication they shouldn't shouldn't take. Yeah. When spring rolled around, Talia, Isabella, and Larry moved back into Sloanham Woods along with the other roommates. For the next several months, Larry's abusive behavior continued to escalate. Once enjoyable dinners and philosophical lectures now felt mandatory and that there was no excuse for missing. Larry's one-on-one counseling sessions also became increasingly problematic. It was during one of these that Larry, who has no medical training, told Claudia that she was schizophrenic, a diagnosis that Claudia believed and began sharing with her high school friends, who had become increasingly worried about her having since met Larry. What? He's diagnosing. Yeah. I mean, again, don't, unless you're a trained medical professional, you should not be diagnosing anyone with something like that. But if you do convince someone they're schizophrenic, well, that's a a, a big thing for you to be able to help them with, work through. You become the shoulder them. for them to cry on, to, to fix them. You're their hero. You know, it also, it's complete uh, emotional abuse that you can then say you're acting this way because you're schizophrenic. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're gaslighting them. You'd be like, Oh, you don't remember that because of mm-hmm. your, you know, because you have this illness, which you don't have. And those, if you talk about somebody takes you that you already have mental health struggles and puts themselves in the role of a counselor and breaks you down. It's not surprising that she believed it. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. Larry's diagnoses didn't stop there. After talking for hours with another roommate, Daniel, who was questioning his sexuality, Larry told the young man, Oh, you're not gay. I can tell you that for sure. Feeling lost and in need of a place to live for the summer, Daniel agreed to move in with Larry and the remaining roommates, Talia, Claudia, Isabella, and Santos, back at the one-bedroom condo on 93rd Street. Daniel later told the cut, I didn't want to go back home and this was my alternative. Part of why I got Nicole at all was because I had no idea how one finds a place to live in New York. This is why I would get into a cult if I was ever, because I don't understand how to navigate things like that in my life. So I'd be like, well, this seems like um, an easy solution. Okay. Yeah. It's a nice neighborhood. He has all the answers. He's maybe providing meals or whatever. We're all, hey, it's all the same people from the dorm. Mm-hmm. You know, it just seems kind of, again, it's like, but then not knowing that at winter break, if you're in the condo, he controls everything about you. But once, you know, you don't know that you think, oh, this is an easy place to live. 
I'll just go to the condo. Everybody else stayed there for winter break. It seemed to go well. Mm-hmm. And now you see it, it, it's about to go not well. It's over. Uh, New York City is, can be an overwhelming mm-hmm. place, especially for a 20 year old mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't know how to navigate a lot of those things. So when someone steps in and once again has all the answers, and this conversation took place. I think at a Starbucks and Daniel said when he walked, when they walked out of the Starbucks, Larry had a limo waiting for them yes. to take them to the condo. And that was a kind of a normal thing. He said there was always a limo on call for anything we needed any time of day. Larry always carried a backpack around with him where he would just have this wad of cash and he would, you know, pay for their expensive steak dinners and, and pick up the tab places. So you know, when you're a poor college kid, this looks like a pretty good deal you're getting. You're like, oh, my friend Tolly, his dad's really rich, and he said we can live with him, mm-hmm. and he takes us around a limo. You do think there's a lot of perks to this, oh, yeah. not knowing you could never expect what was to come. Mm-hmm. It was back at the one-bedroom condo that the accusations from Larry about the students damaging his things began. When one of these perceived wrongs would occur, Larry would force the accused to be grilled by the other roommates. The aggressive line of questioning would last long into the night, not ending until the accused experienced some sort of breakthrough, which was usually an admission of abuse they had suffered as a child. To end these exhausting sessions, some of the roommates began making up traumatic stories. Daniel told the cut. I said when I was a kid, I found a baby bird in my driveway and it was injured and I held it in my hand and crushed it. I claimed that it was this traumatic thing that formed me. Just to end the abuse that you're being put through. Like any interrogation Mm -hmm. where we see that someone is subjected to long hours, berated questioning, you're kept from going to the bathroom, you're kept from eating, things like that, that you literally go, I'll say anything. Falsely confess to get out of it. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. There's a new special on John Oliver, I should tell everyone to watch, where he does a deep dive into police confessions and what the tactics that are used and how they were developed non-scientifically Uh, in order to literally just get somebody to confess. It's not to get the truth out. These tactics were literally developed in order to get someone to confess, and it's the same tactics that you see Larry using. I will have to watch that. I love everything John Oliver does. I do, too. I also love that he put up some of the mean YouTube comments he gets, and someone called him less funny Mr. Bean. (laughs) (laughs) He leans in. He owns it. Yeah, I like it. There was another time that Daniel said, He was convinced by Larry that the reason he plays the ukulele was because of abuse he had suffered from his dad as a kid. And so then to, you know, have this breakthrough, Larry forced him to smash the ukulele in front of everybody. And Daniel's like, I don't know what's going on, but I did it just because I want it to end. But again, he's now planted this seed, not only in your brain, but has said in front of multiple people that then continue this narrative of you were abused by your father as a child. And this is how, and I'm the one Mm -hmm. that helped you have this breakthrough. And then you wonder for the other students that are watching it, whether they have that need for a breakthrough or not, you now have this belief Mm -hmm. that Larry, you have this unwitting accomplice and Daniel who to his credit was just trying to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Just trying to get out of it, do what he wants. But what that's now done has legitimized these processes that Larry is using, which as we know are illegitimate. They're getting these false breakthroughs to come out, but more vulnerable people will now fall under what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you think maybe I have a a repressed memory of trauma Mm -hmm. from my childhood that I need to get out. 
In addition to the confession sessions, Larry would make the roommates accused of damaging his property provide written or video statements promising to repay him. At one point, Santos sent an email to Larry in which he confessed to items he had allegedly broken. According to the cut, the email's subject line was, Prices of your things I damaged slash ruined with preliminary total. The five-page, 50-item list totaled over $47,000. Being in college and not having this kind of money, Santos went to his parents for the funds, threatening suicide if he couldn't pay. Knowing Santos had previously survived a suicide attempt while in high school, his worried family paid up to the extent possible, according to the cut, but Larry prevented them from inspecting any of the damages as proof. In total, over the three years Santos lived with Larry, his parents gave Larry more than $200,000 at their son's insistence, selling their house to cover the cost, according to the cut. Such a rock and a hard place for the parents because you don't want to give this guy money without full evidence of the damages. But also your son is saying, like, I will. This is a life or death situation. You have to help me out. The and dad showed up at the condo wanting to see what was this was all about. And Larry physically prevented him from going upstairs. Probably because of the 50 item list was full of lies. Yeah. yeah. Also, there's a lot of weird shit going on in that apartment that. He wouldn't want anybody to see. But yeah, I mean, the parents, I mean, to sell their house, they were um, immigrants that had owned a grocery store in Washington Heights and had saved and worked so hard all their lives to give all their kids like the best life they could and best education. And to think like this is what it ended up coming down to is just mortifying. All that money they saved, it goes to fund his steak dinners and limousine rides Mm -hmm. and whatever else. Other times, Larry would resort to violence when he believed one of the roommates had broken his belongings. In one instance, he held a knife to Daniel's throat until the boy confessed to the damages. This wasn't the only time Larry became physical with Daniel. When in their senior year, Talia missed a deadline to apply to Stanford Law School, Larry blamed Daniel. Larry claimed Daniel had distracted her according to the cut. Using balled-up aluminum foil wrapped in saran wrap, Larry fashioned a garrote and made Daniel wrap it around his testicles. Larry then squeezed the makeshift torture device to the point of cutting off the blood flow to Daniel's genitals. Yeah, so with little balls of aluminum foil separated, almost like beads on a necklace, you know, with separation, Mm -hmm. and then twisting that around someone's testicles... And everyone kind of just accepted everything always because they all believed that whatever Larry did or whatever he said was for the greater good of all of them. And he was just trying to help all of them. So when it gets to the point that no one's even batting an eye when something like this happens, Mm -hmm. that's how indoctrinated they have become. Yeah. And you think, well, if Larry says it, then he deserves it. Then that's what he yeah. has to, that, that's what has to happen. And you shouldn't have broken his belongings. I also don't think anything got broken. I don't think anything was genuinely broken or I think Larry broke it. They also said he was doing all kinds of wild construction and changing the condo. And there was complaints from other neighbors because of loud banging and sounds and whatnot. So it could very well be that Larry messed something up and then goes and blames one of them. But in this case, it's her fault for missing the deadline to law school. Not in not in his eyes. His eyes 
she's been poisoned her whole life. So she, also you that. know, and and all these people are are out to wrong her. But the the accusations would be, you scratched a a pan of mine, you broke the oven, you mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's it just ran the gamut. I think it was all a con because it was a way for them to get money from their parents that they then gave to Larry. So it's just all one one big con, which he continues and and continues, as we'll see. Well, and also getting them to write the confession email. Mm -hmm. That's another tactic that he started with Talia way back when to try to get that paper trail. Yeah. Larry's abuse reached new heights when he began forcing Daniel and Isabella to have sex while he watched. Larry then began participating and once even invited his friend that owned the condo to join. When this happened, Daniel told the cut. I got so freaked out. There was no consent in that situation. Isabella may have seemed to be pursuing all this, but her mind was being twisted by Larry. Eventually, Daniel found the strength to leave the condo. The final straw happened after Daniel again expressed confusion about his sexuality. Fed up with it, Larry ordered Daniel to don one of Isabella's dresses, take a dildo, and penetrate himself in front of the other roommates. Daniel was humiliated and horrified as his friends looked on and laughed. That is, um, that's a game changer. Yeah, and controlling their, having them have sex with one another, and he would join sometimes. And then in the article it mentioned studying abroad and being away from him, and he has them doing the sex on Skype. So even exerting control from far away, um, and the same with, you know, exerting this control over him, uh, over Daniel to do all that and to then have, like you said, no one, it's not even no one's batting an eye. They're actively participating mm-hmm. in this happening to him. Again, saying, well, Larry said it needed to be, it needed to happen. So it must have been for his own good. Yeah. It's, it's so wild to me that one of these people was his daughter. That there's a lot of sexual yeah. stuff going on with yeah. her in the house. That his Agreed. daughter is fully aware she's totally fine that she's sleeping on the couch with her boyfriend while her dad and one of her roommates slash friends takes up the bedroom. She knows that he's having watching them have sex, have sex with them. And because she's just been mind fucked from him for so long that it's just like second. It's, she doesn't even think twice about it. Completely normalized. Yeah. Yeah. Time and again, the roommate's parents tried calling police. Most had heard about Larry for months or even years and had never felt comfortable with the situation. However, since the students were all over 18 and acting under their own free will, police couldn't do anything. Daniel told New York Magazine that there was nothing that was going to dissuade me. My parents were justifiably afraid and I made this clear to them, whether through my words or my actions that if they weren't on board with Larry, that I would just stop talking to them. In some ways, that's the more dangerous thing. You could just lose contact altogether and have absolutely no lifeline. The parents also have claimed that they went to the dean of Sarah Lawrence and um, other teachers and faculty there and that they received no help. This is what Mm -hmm. they allege. Sarah Lawrence, for their part, has said... We had no idea that he was living on campus and that these things were were going on. They said their internal investigation determined that these were insubstantiated claims. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though 
the parents have said in an interview with The Cut that, you know, at um, school events, the dean came up to them and said, man, I'm really glad that we're that he's moving off and we don't have to deal mm-hmm. with him anymore. You know, these comments that would imply that they were not comfortable with the situation either and they knew some messed up stuff was going on. Claudia's parents also tried multiple times to help their daughter, but never managed to break through to her. When she became obsessed with losing weight one summer, her parents feared Larry was to blame. Their suspicions were right. Larry repeatedly forced his, quote, self-improvement practices on the group. He would admonish them, saying, Do you work out? Can you defend yourself? You look really weak. Sadly, Claudia's parents' attempts to reach their daughter didn't work. They told the cut, You're talking to a young adult, not a six-year-old. If she made a decision to go to Larry's against our will... There was nothing other than physical intervention we could do to stop her. It was like she was literally hypnotized. And her parents lived not too far away from the condo on 93rd Street. They had moved to the city when she got accepted to Sarah Lawrence. So Mm -hmm. she would, they saw her pretty regularly. She would come home, do laundry, get something from their place, then go back to the condo on 93rd Street. And they said, you know, they just she was constantly talking about Larry and they could tell that the thing she was saying was just regurgitated information that he had fed her. She would always talk about the Marines and how disciplined the Marines were and how this is what the Marines would do and this is what they would eat. And they would wake up then and she would criticize them and the way they ran their household. So it was I I just can't imagine how disheartening it is. I mean, you're you're just watching your daughter slip away and there's nothing you can do about it. You've called the cops. They're like, sorry, she's an adult. We can't do anything about it. Even the parents recognize she's an adult. Unless we physically, you know, tie her down, there's not much we can do about it. Yeah. And it's bizarre to me, his obsession with this working out in the Marines. He was not a very physically fit person himself. But again, I think, Putting that pressure on them is a way to now control their bodies. You control their mm-hmm. bodies sexually. Now you're also controlling their bodies physically insofar as what they can eat, how they need to work out, putting that in her head. But you're absolutely right. The parents did exactly what they could do, which is to say you listen, you leave an open door policy mm-hmm. so you don't, as Daniel said, leave her with no lifeline that you say, we're still here. Please come do your laundry. We would love to listen to you talk about this person because as sure as you go, you know what? You need to stop talking about that Larry guy. Mm -hmm. He's, she's going to go home and tell him and he's going to go, you shouldn't go to your parents Mm -hmm. anymore. Yep, exactly. I mean, this is all classic cult one-on-one. You, it all starts off, you know, rose colored glasses. And then slowly your autonomy gets taken away from you. Weird sex stuff becomes involved your everything you do is being controlled who you see what you eat where you go i mean he's got all of them completely in the palm of his hand and setting up the whole concept of transgressions and and mm-hmm. consequences yeah. where you say well you broke my pants so i'm going to do i'm going to put my a knife to your throat mm-hmm. or he told one of i think it was santos he said i'm going to gut you like a fish mm-hmm. he was identified as man too in the doj affidavit but he was it was these I mean, with a knife to his gut. I mean, very, very threatening, violent acts. Yeah. And choking people and things. And so 
because you've now set that up of transgressions and consequences, then you say, well, I want the good attention that he'll give. No one's going to hurt my baby girl. I love you. Mm -hmm. And also I want to avoid being held at knife point. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, all of those are what an abuser does. Santos's parents had already suffered a devastating emotional and financial loss. Now they had even more to worry about. After Daniel broke free, Santos had introduced his two older sisters, Yalitza and Felicia, to Larry. They were both bright, successful young women. Their parents had worked hard to give all three of their children a good life with access to top-notch education. While their son attended Sarah Lawrence, Yalitza was at Columbia University, and Felicia was a Harvard graduate with a medical degree from Columbia. She had recently started her residency in Los Angeles when she and Larry began communicating regularly. Like so many others, Larry convinced Felicia that Bernie Carrick was after him, and in turn, after Felicia. She told the cut, I was concerned because of my parents, because this whole thing involved Bernard Carrick and the police, going to the police in California and Los Angeles, which is incredibly corrupt. It was like, is this really going to be effective? Before long, Larry had convinced both of the sisters to move in with him. Not long after, Larry began a romantic relationship with Felicia. The grief-stricken parents had now lost all three of their children to Larry's vicious tactics. Unfortunately for them, and everyone else involved, the situation would only get worse. It's to lose your one kid to a cult, that's devastating. To lose all three, unfathomable. And especially having her move across the country, Mm -hmm. leaving her job behind, leaving behind this career that she studied. She is depicted in a video that was part of, uh, you know, part of the evidence in this case where he's sitting on a bench and she's in his arm. Felicia's in his arms screaming and he's like holding her down and she's, I guess, having an emotional I don't know if it's a breakthrough, but someone's filming on their phone while Larry's holding her and she's screaming, screaming, screaming. And then she gets up and starts to yell at the camera and saying, I don't I don't want to. No, I don't want to. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And she goes into the bathroom and then Larry goes like and gets up and follows her in the bathroom. The person filming follows them in the bathroom and he grabs her by her hair and shoves her face down into the sink and is like, spit it out, spit it out. What did you take? And she said, I just took an Adderall. I just took an Adderall, which it was alleged by some of the reporters that Larry was constantly taking Adderall, whether yeah. yeah, prescribed or unprescribed, but always kind of hopped up on that. And she's like, I took I just took one. I just took one. But he's still just the way it's like she's a rag doll. She's yeah. a he's holding her down like she's a rag doll. Finally lets her go. She goes off and he just grabs her by the back of the head and it shoves her head down in the sink and he goes, spit it out. I'm like, she's not a dog. She's a, a human person with autonomy. But just to watch that was very, of course, Paris looked over and goes, what are you watching? I said, it's that cult leader. And he was like, Jesus, because you just watch somebody manhandled like that. Somebody that she's clearly in an emotionally distressful situation. I mean, she's very distressed, screaming and to watch him just yank her around. And now and knowing, you know, that's one of three siblings that this whole family lost all their children to. And he's okay, and even wants it to be filmed. Yes. It's not like it was in secret where he didn't want anybody to know how he was. No, he was, for whatever reason, uh, a a learning tool or whatever he tried to say it was where they could all watch it back and like you're watching game footage. Who knows? But that's um, adds an extra layer of just to the whole thing. Absolutely. And doesn't he has 
no qualms about Mm-mm. just going, yeah, I did that. I did that. Yeah. I did that. Well, so what do we think? Well, it's knowing what we know. It's only going to get worse in part two. But so far, I think it is fascinating how his entire life built up to this. Because when I very first read the article, I thought, this guy came out of nowhere and just started mm-hmm. doing this to these college students. But he'd been training for this since the 80s. Yeah. Since collecting people, collecting people he could use as pawns, treating women like they're nothing, manipulating people, uh, being interrogated by the FBI and by officials. So now knowing tactics that he's going to go and use, Mm -hmm. manipulating his own daughter, fabricating evidence in the custody case. Now these are all these horrible tools he's putting in his tool belt that then when he gets this opportunity to move into this dorm, it's a kid in a candy store. Mm -hmm. He's ready and he just takes the, he jumps, he jumps at the opportunity. Yeah, it's uh, horrifying that this went on for so long and that it was so effortless for him. Oh, yeah, exactly right. And he seems to enjoy it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe that he, on some level, has convinced himself that he really is helping these kids. On another level, he thinks that... Um, he has been wronged and that he's being poisoned. And when I say helping these kids, I don't mean like we would think, oh, he's doing a good job. He's helping those kids. He believes that all these abusive tactics and everything he's doing is saving them from themselves. He he told them all that what that they they had all come together because of their mutual obsession with all ending their lives. And some had and some hadn't, and mm-hmm. so, and, but planting those seeds mm-hmm. again in there and knowing these therapy sessions was really just a way. It's like the Budafield cult leader. Yeah. He did these therapy sessions as a way to get information mm-hmm. that you then use to manipulate yeah. people oh, yeah. and manipulate them into sexual relationships. And I think you're right that I think he did think he was helping them, and I, but I think also it stems from he thinks he's better and smarter oh, yeah. than everyone on the whole entire planet. For sure. So if people are under his care, then he knows they're they're If you do whatever he says to do, you're doing the right thing because mm-hmm. he's always right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He is an egomaniac that thinks mm-hmm. he um, is can do no wrong. The rules don't apply to him. He's he himself is a victim in his mind from George W. Bush on down, and has thought that from uh, for decades, and has taught his children that. So. He's been, it's not like he went to jail and just was so angry about the things that had happened to him. He comes out with guns blazing and he had been like this arguably his whole life. Oh, yeah. And manipulative and the man of many faces Mm -hmm. being able to change to be what everybody wants him to be so that he could get what he wants out of him. I don't think he genuinely, truly connected with anybody, not even his own kid. I think he doesn't. He may love Talia because she's in the and his other daughter because they're his offspring. Mm-hmm. But I think his any affection he's going to get out of anybody is what they can do for him. Yeah. Yes. And how Sadly. loyal they are to him. Mm-hmm. And I believe I read in, in one article that he um, and perhaps this is why he changed his last name. He did not have a good relationship with his mother. And he also believed that she was out to get him and was part of, you know, a greater conspiracy to ruin him. So he's. um. He has all these paranoid tendencies and they manifest in horrific ways and he brings so many innocent people into this web of just deceit and destruction. 
And all and what we've heard so far is bad. And how could it get worse? It does. Oh yeah. Yep. There's a lot more to come in the second part, which we will release this week. And it 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 definitely only gets worse from here. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, Wedded Drama, True Crime Headlines, and so much more. And the patrons in our Getting Into It tier are able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to see live-streamed. And April's live stream is tomorrow, April 21st at 8 p.m. Central. I believe we're doing a listener-submitted Am I the Asshole. The last I checked, that was in the lead. A little bit neck and neck with Judge Christie, but it was still in the lead. So we'll see what wins, and we'll perform that for you April 21st at 8 p.m. Central. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions, and it is happening tonight at 8 p.m. Central, so you still have time, if you're listening to this before 8 p.m. Central, to hop on over to Patreon and get to partake in this fun. Uh, You'll also notice that it happens to be 420, (laughs) and last I checked, the poll asking, should we take an MC before this uh, no one had said no. <laughs> so <laughs> looks like uh, that will be happening. Another huge perk you get right now with our Patreon is you get pre-sale access to our tour that's going on. So lots of tickets are already being purchased. If you want to make sure that you get yours, then jump on over to Patreon. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Please keep those pictures coming. And if you want some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We're also on YouTube and TikTok. Christy, where are you on the computer? I am on Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO, and I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world, and I am on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. Also, shout out to you. You've been making some funny tweets recently. <laughs> I noticed. I've enjoyed them, and I've noticed. <laughs> Thank you very much. I. You know, I go through spurts where I won't tweet for like a year and then all of a sudden I'm like tweeting four days in a row, (laughs) you know? It's so pleasant. It's such a pleasant surprise. I'm like, oh, shoot, we got some hot content. (laughs) I asked you the other day, I go, when we were uh, 
in Austin for the Moon Tower Festival, which was so much fun. And thank you so much again to Moon Tower just for laughs for having us and to everyone that came to the show. We're also going to be releasing that show soon. But I asked you when we were at lunch, how do you get a tweet to go viral? And you go, it's hard. It's real hard. It's real hard. So, <laughs> so uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe I don't want to. I only want a good one to go viral. Yeah, I don't yeah, want yeah. something bad to go viral. So it's a double-edged sword. So that's, that's why I try and only tweet funny stuff. There you go. Well, as always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout-outs. Kaylee Livers. Megan Merrick. Taylor Rister. Matus Keisel. Emily Powers. Elizabeth Thompson. Bailey Delaire. Megan Dilworth. Jen Thompson. Danielie Souza. Maya Price. Cassie Odebear. Quay Koontz. Emma Hartley. Lindsay Steele. Katie. Alicia Miller. Alicia Marganti. Mary Eileen Purcell. Natalie Barber. I love you so much. Oh, I wish I could give you a hug right now. You're the best. Tyler Kalanuk. Avery. Lauren Bishop. Tracy Rodriguez. Christine. Kristen Beck. Emma Christine Aldrich. Rachel Mankowski. Catherine Robinson. Caitlin Adair. Stacey Castle. Haley Hicks. Michelle LaPointe. Patty Finch. Jennifer Beziatsade. Paloma. Allie Schneider. Kimberly Margaret. Whitney Marleys. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do this without you. We sincerely appreciate it. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. <laughs>